Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Devlina Chakraborty. And today we have a fun kind of summary episode. We're going to enjoy ourselves a little bit. And the idea for this episode has been brewing, not to make a terrible pun, for quite some time, actually since Katie and I did an episode on chocolate way back in the fall. And a few years ago, just in case you missed that episode or you want a little context on it, a few years ago, researchers at Hershey Chocolate and the University of Pennsylvania Museum did some chemical analysis on these Honduran pottery sherds dating from about 1400 BC. And they were these long neck jars from Puerto Escondido. And they showed, they ended up showing traces of theobromine, which which is the fingerprint compound of cacao, which is, of course, why it came up in the chocolate episode in the first place. Yeah, so later Mayans and Aztecs used that cacao, the cacao beans, to make a frothy, chocolatey drink, adding tasty mixers like honey, chilies, flowers, and annatto. But the Puerto Escondido didn't show residues from any of those common additives, just the theobromine, suggesting that this wasn't an early chocolate drink made from cacao beans. It was actually an early fermentation beverage made from the cacao pulp. That cacao pulp ferments naturally as well, producing a 5 to 7% alcohol drink. So animals have been indulging in that for time immemorial, but we're going to be talking a little bit about the human side of it. So drinks that people made on purpose, that Honduran discovery actually pushed back human cacao consumption 500 years and, interestingly, also created this offshoot modern beer, which we have a cup of today. We're going to be sampling that while we podcast. We'll we'll sort of rate it at the end or maybe just talk about it a little bit and talk about some other historical drinks. So here, let's give it a sip to Lena. Oh, Pretty good. Not bad. All right. So we do have a method to this madness, though. We haven't just gone after every historical find of alcohol in the past century or whatever. Yeah. We, and it's not just an excuse to drink beer. No. <laughs> we, we have, we have an order behind all of this. Yeah. We're going to kind of split up this podcast a little bit into ancient alcohols or those truly ancient finds that were found as residues and identified through fingerprint compounds, like yeah. Sarah mentioned. So the liquid is all gone. Exactly. There's no liquid to work with. But by performing a series of chemical tests, including mass spectrometry tests um, and other things like that, researchers can ID-based components of beer, wine, and other Spirits. Yeah, so they're, so they're testing the gunk that's on the bottom of the pottery bowl or the bronze vessel. And we're going to talk more about that in this episode. And then. And gunk is a scientific term. Yes. That's <laughs> what we're going to be using. And then in a later episode, we're going to talk about old alcohol and aged alcohol. So basically things where there's still some liquid, where it's still drinkable, or I mean, you can define that how you want. It may not be that tasty anymore, but Alcohol that can be identified by what's still in the bottle. So these are hundreds of years old or even less than that rather than thousands of years old. So researchers can pop them open, still study them chemically, but also sample them. Uh, but for now, we're going to stick to those older, gunkier alcohol varieties. And before we get to talk about some of those specific finds, how did humans start brewing alcohol in the first place? Well, 
fruit actually ferments naturally, right? So many animals were partaking of that even before we were creating alcohol on purpose. Monkeys, birds, elephants, you name it. But there's a big jump between that eating a fermented fruit for a buzz and, as I mentioned, purposely creating fermenting beverages. So unfortunately, though, since those early beverages would have been brewed and consumed in biodegradable vessels like gourds, we don't really have evidence of them. We do know this, though. The oldest barley beer came from Iran's Sagros Mountains, and it's from around 3400 B.C. The oldest grape wine is also from Zagros, and it originated around 5400 B.C. And the earliest of any known alcohol came from China, and it dates from around 7000 B.C. And so we're going to tell you a little bit more on that to start out with. Exactly. So until fairly recently, the oldest known alcohol came from Iran again, and it was about 7,400 years old. But China was a really good place to go looking for earlier evidence of alcohol, in part because people started making pottery there thousands of years before they did in the Near East. It's quite a startling difference, in fact, Um, probably about 13,000 B.C. in China versus 6,000 B.C. in the Near East. And pottery, I think we mentioned this before, is great for for testing for traces of alcohol. It absorbs liquid into its pores, and it's also just really pretty much indestructible. So it's great for searching for those fingerprint compounds. And that's exactly what Patrick McGovern of the University of Pennsylvania Museum did. He took a look at high-necked pottery jars, which were excavated from the Neolithic village of Jiahu in northern China. China. And now Jiahu had already proven to be a treasure trove of ancient materials containing some of China's oldest pottery, evidence of early rice domestication, and the oldest known playable musical instrument made from a bird's wing bone. But when McGovern found traces of alcohol in the pottery shards, Jiahu also became the home of the world's oldest brew, a triple combo of beer, wine, and mead that's about 9,000 years old. Which sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Beer, wine, and mead. McGovern calls it a Neolithic grog. Specifically, it is honey mead, rice, grapes, and hawthorn fruit. So quite a combination. And we're going to be talking about another combination right now. The cool thing about studying ancient alcohol is that many of the samples that you can test for are already in museums. And it wasn't until about the 1970s, really the late 1980s, that scientists started seriously trying to identify the contents of ancient vessels, not just by their shape and size. I know we've talked about amphorae before, but by the chemical makeup of what's inside. And they actually have the technology to be able to do so. So case in point, the tomb of King Midas or potentially his father. I was surprised to learn King Midas was a real guy. Yeah, I was too. I was not aware. Anyway, King Midas or his father's tomb was excavated in central Turkey way back in 1957. And it was a very impressive find. Excavators opened the tomb. It was kind of a King Tut situation almost. There was a body laid out among these beautiful blue and purple cloths. And the whole scene was surrounded by bronze vessels. Specifically, 157 bronze vats and jugs and bowls, and all of them 
2,700 years old. An interesting note on the gold, though. There wasn't any gold there. No, they were bronze, but filled with a golden residue, which is what we're interested in. So 40 years later, McGovern is testing the samples for specific fingerprint compounds, such as tartaric acid, which would come from Middle Eastern grapes or be indicative of Middle Eastern grapes, beeswax, um, which would be indicative of honey mead, and calcium oxalate or beer stone, which would indicate the presence of barley beer. So again, like the Chinese find, Midas's brew must have been a combo of grape wine, honey mead, and barley beer. And it was at this point that McGovern started to get curious about the taste of a beverage like that. Because it doesn't sound very good, does it? I thought it sounded okay. It sort of had some fruity essence. Honey always sounds good to me. I'm I'm not exactly sure what mead tastes like anyway, but I'm just imagining if you mixed your glass of wine and your bottle of beer together. Oh, yeah. Not very good. Not very tasty. So McGovern was curious, though. He wanted to know if there was something better sounding than just mixing your store-bought brews together. So he announced a competition among microbrewers who were attending a dinner at the museum and challenged them with recreating the brew. Dogfish Head Brewery won out, and McGovern helped them create a recreation of Midas's drink. So just a cool note on this, the bittering agent used in this drink wasn't hops, which was only introduced to Europe around 780 but saffron. And I just made some uh, Moroccan food recently that required having to buy some saffron, and it is literally the world's most expensive spice. So this would have been some pretty high-end beer for sure. And it's interesting, much like the beer we're tasting now, Dogfish Head did a recreation of this Midas beer called, what is it called, Midas Touch? Midas Touch. Yeah, and there was this article in the Smithsonian, the August 2011 issue, so the most recent issue, about this whole process of Dogfish Head recreating these brews, and there's a lot on McGovern and his career. And my favorite quote from this article was a quote from a colleague of McGovern's named Alexei Vronrich, who is an expert on pre-Columbian Peru, And he said, quote, I keep telling people that beer is more important than armies when it comes to understanding people. And that's true. It really does teach us not just about the society, but their agricultural abilities, their trade, their religion, what sort of um, traditions they had. And it even teaches us a little bit about what kind of medical knowledge they had, which I found to be a really interesting discovery in this podcast that beer or alcohol was even known to very ancient people as having some sort of beneficial properties to it. And that brings us to the next entry on this list, which is an ancient beer. And just to give you a little background on this, for more than 20 years, Emory University anthropologist George Armilagos and his team had been studying bones dated to between AD 350 and 550 from Nubia, an ancient kingdom south of ancient Egypt along the Nile River. And this was long ago, maybe the early 80s, when they found traces of the antibiotic tetracycline in the bones. Now, today, tetracycline is actually used from everything from acne flare-ups to urinary tract infections, and it only came into commercial use about half a century ago. Because, after all, Alexander Fleming only discovered penicillin back in 1928. Right. So, of course, this could have an impact on the study of the relationship between microbes and antibiotics, but it also makes you wonder, how did the tetracycline get into these bones in the first place? It was in more than 90% of the bones they were looking at, including those of a toddler. So Armalagos, who specializes in reconstructing ancient diets, proposed that the Nubians made the tetracycline in their beer. 
But the way he reached that conclusion is pretty interesting. So tetracycline is produced by a soil bacteria that's called Streptomyces. And that bacteria really thrives in warm, arid climates like that of ancient Nubia. So according to Armilagos, the ancient Nubians stored their grain in mud bins. So there was a pretty high chance that the grain could have been contaminated by this bacteria. And in looking at how the grain was used, they came across a recipe recipe for beer, because back then beer was probably a tastier way of consuming the grain rather than eating it. So it's pretty likely that the contaminated grain, in turn, contaminated a batch of beer. And there you go. So once the Nubians noticed that that beer made them feel better and cured maybe some bacterial infections they might have had, they started to propagate it. Now, you may wonder, could they have actually had the skills to propagate that? And researchers have kind of answered this. They said that they probably did know how to propagate beer because they were doing the same thing with wine. And Streptomyces produces a golden-colored bacterial colony that would have floated on top of the beer. And since ancient cultures revered gold, this was probably another reason that they encouraged propagation of it, too. Yeah, definitely. And Armilagos co-authored a study about this with chemist Mark Nelson, which was published in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology in June 2010, so just last year. And to prove that that antibiotic beer was possible, Armilagos actually had his grad students try to make it, which I think sounds really fun. But it wasn't beer as we think of it today, this this beer from the past. It was more like a cereal gruel, Armilagos explains. And a quote of his in Wired describes the taste thus. He says, my students that it was, quote, not bad, but it is like a sour porridge substance. The ancient people would have drained the liquid off and also eaten the gruel. And so children would have probably been allowed to eat the stuff left over in the bottom of the vat, too. I think that not bad quote requires like a certain kind of intonation, <laughs> depending <laughs> on how you're going to how you're going to see it. Doesn't sound good to me. Maybe it depends on your taste level. I guess so. It reminded me, though, of the dogfish head uh, founder. He actually described that to modern palates, a lot of these ancient brews wouldn't be good at all. They would have these thick lumps in them and people actually drank them with straws to filter all of that out. And I don't know if I found a lump in my drink, unless it's bubble tea. I don't know. I'm just imagining like if you poured a beer in oatmeal. Oh, no. <laughs> That's what it sounds to me when he says a cereal gruel, but maybe not. Maybe I'm off on that. So we're not sure why the antibiotic beer secret was lost to us, but Armilagos is looking for the tetracycline in bones of different cultures, and he's found evidence as late as 1300 to 1400 A.D. So this is still kind of a developing story. All right. So moving on, we have another medicinal sort of alcohol, although this time it is wine rather than beer or rather than beer poured in oatmeal, as you described (laughs) it. So in 1994, German archaeologists found a flaky yellow residue in a jar found in the tomb belonging to King Scorpion I in Egypt. And that tomb was built at about 3150 B.C., so pretty ancient as far as the finds we've talked about so far go. Working with a German group in 2001, McGovern, who we keep on bringing up here, determined that the residue had contained salt crystals that were left behind when tartaric acid in grapes breaks down. And that was evidence that the wine, which is Egypt's oldest wine, had 
been kept in the jar. But he didn't stop there. McGovern and his colleagues used several chemical techniques to tease out the other biological additives and match them to known plants. The tests that they performed indicated the presence of tree resin and also several herbs. The the tests they did, though, weren't precise enough to figure out the exact herbs that were used, but probably things like balm, senna, coriander, mint, sage, and thyme, all of which show up in ancient Egyptian medical writings as treatments for a number of ailments. So, McGovern says, while these ingredients would have added flavor, they were most likely chosen for their medicinal benefits. The jar apparently also had an ancient label of sorts, maybe a wine label we could call it, that identified it as an herbal wine. All right. So going back, though, papyrus records from as far back as 1850 B.C. do make reference to medicinal wines being used to treat various ailments. And somehow the ancient Egyptians figured out that the alcohol would preserve those herbal remedies and make them more potent. So it was a good delivery system, essentially. But this new discovery pushes back the use of medicinal wines 1,500 years, which, according to National Geographic, predates the advent of Egyptian vineyards even. So that date means that these wines were obviously not made in Egypt or grown in Egypt at least. They were instead imports from the Jordan River Valley, which obviously influenced the Egyptian pharmacopoeia. These findings were published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in April 2009. And again, with like the beer, researchers are still testing these wine medicine recipes and trying to figure out why Egyptians found them useful and if they could still be useful today if you hit on the right recipe could they help remedy some modern day ailments well I think that about the antibiotic one too that an antibiotic could be delivered through a beer is kind of an interesting twist on the pharmaceutical industry would probably make a lot of people want to take their medicine probably yeah well and that's a major problem people not finishing their course of antibiotics but yeah I'm probably getting ahead of myself we promised though that we would discuss this drink a little bit which is a Dogfish Head, and it is uh, the same company that made the Midas Touch, as we mentioned, and works a lot with McGovern, the archaeologist who keeps popping up. And it's called Theobroma, and it is the recreated version of the ancient Honduran drink we started out with. And they couldn't use fresh cacao fruit, though, from Honduras because it would go bad. They've got to be able to make large enough batches to sell this stuff. They're based in Delaware. I managed to find it in Atlanta. So they can't have this um, spoiling fruit as the base of it. Instead, they used Aztec chocolate nibs and powder, and the bitterness is offset by honey and corn. I was expecting it to be pretty bitter because of the chocolate. Yeah, but it's not. It's not at all. I don't taste the chili aftertaste, though. I don't either, but I'm not... I'm not very good at identifying specific flavors. I don't think I am either. Maybe we're a bad pair to be doing this. I don't have a very refined palate, but I do like it. I can say I usually, I was telling Sarah, I don't like things that are fruity or spicy or otherwise flavored. And I don't really like things that are chocolatey, at least if they're alcohol-based. But this doesn't seem that way. It's not overpowering at all. No. And conveniently, it's called the drink of the gods. That's what the aroma means. So, yeah, not too bad. And I mean that not in a gruel beer kind of way. (laughs) Yes, this is nothing like beer and oatmeal, and I'm really sorry if we created a bad visual for anyone. But we are going to leave you on that note, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, if you're interested in trying this beer. We are going to now move on to listener mail. 
So in keeping with the idea of the ancient Americas, since we just talked about a Honduran-influenced beer, we have a three-part listener mail from listeners Debbie and John. They actually sent us three postcards from the Cahokia Mounds because we did a podcast on that recently and inspired them to visit. And so I'm not going to be able to read the whole thing because it's kind of long, but I'm going to read a couple parts of it. I'm going to read what they just the introduction and then what they saw. So she says, Hi, ladies. I'm sending three postcards of our trip to Cahokia so you can see the photo view of the largest mound as it looks today, as well as an artist's rendering of how the area looked when it was an ancient city. We were inspired to take a road trip there by your podcast on the city, as well as a co-worker who mentioned that his uncle was an archaeologist at the University of Illinois. The site was very interesting with many displays of items that were unearthed during the construction in the area and digs. Although I always thought I would need to go outside the U.S. to see the history of a couple hundred years old, I never knew I lived just a few hundred miles from such a large ancient city. So thanks for making us aware. We've really heard from a lot of people who have gone ahead and made a trip to Cahokia because they don't live too far. And they've some have, have even driven by before, but have finally decided to pull over and see it. Yeah, and it looks like it's worth it. That photo on the first postcard, which shows the mounds today, is amazing. I really like the artist rendition, too, with the all the people and buildings surrounding it, too. Yeah, we may have to take some photos of these to put on Facebook for everyone to check out. But thank you, Debbie and John, for sending these to us and letting us know about your trip. We appreciate that. If you have any exciting travels that you want to share with us, maybe based on podcasts, but they don't necessarily have to be based on previous podcasts, please go ahead and email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com, or you can look us up on Twitter at Missed in History or on Facebook. And in the meantime, if you want to learn a little bit more about how beer works, we do have an article on that topic. You can find it by searching for How Beer Works on the homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Work's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.